Father, we do praise you this morning and trust in your sovereign hand, and we praise you for it. That we don't have to worry about schedules or things that press in on us, but uh, we know that you have all things under your control. We praise you for that. We praise you for the indications that you give us that you are in control as you work in healings and other issues, and we can just trust doctors that your hand's going to guide them. You work all things, even bad things, you can work for our good, as you say in Romans. So we praise you. This morning we desire, as we get into your word directly, that we would understand it and that it would impact us, that it would not be just another Sunday, that we would in fact be changed and conformed more to your image as your word works in us. We desire to be reminded of anything that might hinder that, that any sin that we need to confess, that we might be cleansed and in direct fellowship with you. So we commit our time and our study to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, our focus in Romans will be the first four verses where Paul is answering some objections that a Jewish audience or a Jewish reader might raise concerning the things that he said in chapter 2. And I'll talk a little bit about that, but we also have a couple of verses to look at at the end of chapter 2. We didn't quite get to before the trip that I took. So the believers in Rome were not too much different from uh, you and I in terms of spirituality and needs and that sort of thing. Obviously, technologically, different cultures, different cultures in other ways as well. But because Scripture is inspired, what Paul wrote in the first century is not only applicable to the first century, and by the way, we're reading somebody else's mail, Book of Romans not directly written to us, written to a particular group of people in a particular situation, different historical circumstances than us, but because it's inspired, it's eternal. In other words, the principles are applicable for all time. So, just a quick overview of the passage. We're in the last portion. He's not only addressing particularly the Jewish portion of the audience to give them insight concerning the distinction between Jew and Gentile. He's separated out that all of the Gentiles certainly are condemned. The Jews would have agreed with that, and they had somewhat of a self-righteous attitude. You know, we are okay with God. We are the special people. We have special privileges, certain advantages, that sort of thing. But in the first century, there was a self-righteous attitude in the sense that we don't need to live the life. We don't need to make a commitment. And in fact, the nation as a whole had rejected the Messiah. So they're in a predicament in their self-righteousness. Paul reminds them of principles of judgment. No partiality is kind of the heart of it all, but also no one escapes. And that includes the Jewish people as well. And some of the other principles, that's verse 2 through 16. We looked at, and we're still in the last couple of verses, Paul is bringing it home to them. In other words, he's going to demonstrate that they, in fact, are under the judgment that he laid out in verses 2 through 16. And we'll get into the next portion, chapter 3, and that'll be the focus, actually, today. 1 through 8, 
the Jews would say, well, that doesn't make sense in light of the fact that we do have advantages. So he's going to answer some of those questions and they might have some other objections as well. In fact, there's at least four of them, as you notice on the outline sheet, four objections that would be raised. And rather than letting them raise them, he raises them himself and then he answers them so that basically they have no excuse. So we're looking, first of all, at the proof of Jewish or Jews' guilt, 17 through 19. We saw they were they failed in being inconsistent. Yes, they had the word, but they were not living according to it. That's 17 through 24, 25 through 29, a failure in circumcision. In other words, yes, they were involved in the ritual that God had commanded all the way back to Abraham, but it had become a totally external practice. And what Paul is reminding them is the Old Testament talks about spirituality internally, not just an external act. So they were lacking in that and in need of a Messiah that he's going to talk about later on in the book. So he issues their complaint in verse 25, for indeed circumcision is a value. In other words, they might even ask, well, what's the value of it? It's a value if you practice the law. In other words, there needs to be internal transformation. It's not just works. It's not just externals. And then he says, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. In other words, you have become Gentile. You are no better. You are, in terms of the eyes of God, no better than a Gentile. So that's verse 25. So we looked at the importance of it going back all the way to Genesis 17. It is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It acknowledges in the thinking of every Jew, yes, I belong to this community that God has a plan for world history. I identify by circumcision with this community in terms of the community, but in terms of individual transformation, that was also needed. And it was supposedly, or it was intended as a sign of internal circumcision as well. So it goes back to Genesis 17, and by the first century, the Jews had looked at it and it alone as the means of a relationship with God. Just the physical act, regardless of any internal or spiritual transformation. Now, there's an analogy that we can draw at the end of that as well. So we looked at misconceptions, and what Paul does is he corrects those misconceptions and says, in fact, because of the way they live, they stand condemned, even condemned by Gentiles. That's verses 26 and 27. So 26, so if the uncircumcised man, in other words, the Gentile, keeps the requirements of the law, now this is somewhat hypothetical, in other words, if there were some Gentile that could keep the law, and even the Jews could not do it, so you could not ever expect a Gentile to, but if there were a case where there was a Gentile or an uncircumcised, if he were to keep the law, will not, in other words, from God's perspective, would not that uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In other words, if his heart were circumcised, it didn't matter what the externals were. Got it? So that's kind of his condemnation. 
So he's going to give the spiritual significance, reminding them of the passages that we looked at. Verse 27, and he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law? In other words, you have the written content of the law. You can go to it. You have the scrolls. You hear it every Sabbath. Will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? In other words, the Gentiles that, in fact, are circumcised in heart, if you're not, they are put in a position of judgment over you, using the same word that we've looked at before when we were looking at judgment. Same term, crino, will they not judge you? So he's really twisting the knife as he's already stuck it into to them. And, you know, any Jew that thought that he was lower than a Gentile, Paul was saying that's basically it. They are above you sitting in judgment if they are keepers of the law and you are not. So basically they are under condemnation and the conclusion, this is where we left off last time, verses 28 and 29, he's going to identify what makes up a true Jew. In other words, this is the explanation. A true Jew, first of all, he has to contrast that in verse 28 with a, just to keep the C's there, you might say a false Jew or a non-Jew, but I, I use this C, contradictory. In other words, the externals are contradicting the internals. So a contradictory Jew in verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. There you go. Very clear. No question. In other words, it's not the sign that is the most important. It's the internal change, the internal belief that leads to transformation. So it's not outward. Now, this is human nature. The human nature is we like to do those externals. We like to be seen in church. We like to go through baptism. We like all these externals. Because we think that by doing the externals, at least we appear spiritual to those around us. And somehow in our minds we think, well, that makes us spiritual. But that's not the case today, and it was not the case ever, even in the Old Testament. Moses speaks of spiritual circumcision, circumcision of the heart, all the way back to Deuteronomy, before the nation is even a nation. So this goes all the way back. The internal attitude, the internal involvement with a relationship with God is what is key. So he is not a Jew who is one outwardly doing all of the externals. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. That's just a sign or that's just uh, an external indication of something internal. Something internal. Makes sense? Our nature is such, we depend on the external and try to cover over or omit the internal. It's true today as well. So that's verse 28. So that that looks like gold, feels like gold, but is only fool's gold, is not gold, right? Basically, that's the analogy I'm using to portray what Paul is saying. 
Paul is saying it looks like a Jew goes through all the ritual of Judaism, circumcision being the focus in this passage, but that does not make them a true Jew. Make sense? Today, similarly, there are a lot of people that go to church. They appear to be Christian. They live in what supposedly was at one time a Christian nation. They say the Christian words. They go through the Christian ritual. But a lot of them are not what Jesus identifies in John 3, born again. In other words, they're not regenerated. They have the externals, but they don't have the reality. So also in the first century, they looked like Jews, they went through all the ritual, they were circumcised. From all external indications, you would say, well, they're Jewish. They're a Jew, but they're not a true Jew from God's perspective. So that's verse 28, and then verse that's in contrast to verse 29, a correct Jew, using C again, or true Jew, if you want to use that one, break the... Uh, alliteration. What does a a true Jew or a correct Jew look like? Well, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Is it possible for a Gentile to be a Jew in the eyes of God? Well, the prior verses seem to indicate that. Yes, if he is circumcised in his heart. In other words, if he has an inward relationship, an inward trust in uh, the Messiah or in the Old Testament, an inward trust in the promise of Messiah, then he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Now, he's addressing this primarily to the Jews who externally appear that way, and then he's going to expand, and circumcision is that which is of the heart. And we looked at the Deuteronomies, the Leviticus, the the prophets and in the Psalms that speak of circumcision inwardly or of the heart. That's true circumcision, that which is of the heart. And he adds, by the spirit, it is spiritual. It is inward. You can't see it. The external is just a public acknowledgement or a public testimony that should indicate the inward. And his praise is not from men. In other words, God sees it. The externals, men can say, yeah, you're Jewish. You look Jewish. You go through the Jewish ritual. You're circumcised, but I can't see your heart. God sees the heart, so his praise is not from men, that that is circumcised inwardly, but from God because he is the one that sees the heart. So he's getting at the heart here of a relationship And this is going to leave the Jew condemned. In other words, you're not even Jewish. You have Jewish blood, go through Jewish ritual, you have all of the externals, but in reality, you're no different than a Gentile. Make sense? So that's chapter 2. So, there is a New Testament analogy that I've kind of been alluding to. Today, you could substitute in this passage, in terms of application you could substitute the word baptism. Circumcision was done on the eighth day. We baptize infants, or some denominations do, others do not. I think it's better not to, because it has to involve the heart attitude, and an infant doesn't know what's going on. It's done 
to him, baptism that is, and even circumcision. So the New Testament analogy is baptism. Baptism is supposed to be an external sign, an external testimony that in fact the individual that is baptized is proclaiming publicly that he has experienced an inward change, an inward regeneration. So it's not the act of baptism, and there's a distortion in some some uh, denominations. We call it baptismal regeneration. It's not a biblical doctrine. It's a false concept. Some think the very act, in fact, regenerates or somehow magically causes an inward change, and that is not the case biblically. It's an outward sign, and the New Testament is clear on that. If we had more time, we could look at some of those passages that indicate that there is a spiritual baptism. In fact, we're going to see it in Romans 6. All right? Mary Lee. say that some people just see baptism as being, I checked the box, you know. That's right. Are. I've got yeah. all the externals checked, all the boxes it's, checked. It exactly. involve a change. I That's just, right. I did this, so therefore I have... Yeah, Juliet. Yeah, the main reason is because humanly our hearts are such, we like those externals, and it probably comes from passages like in the book of Acts, when it talks about like Cornelius, it talks about he and his family were baptized. In other words, it assumes that there were children there, and perhaps even young ones. And then over time... This is the tendency, not just in older denominations like Roman Catholicism, but this happens in Protestant circles as well. We degenerate from Scripture. We depart and we substitute these traditions for what the Bible teaches. So it's just the inclination of the heart to decline. And this is how it shows up, particularly in this area, and it shows up in other areas as well. So we have to always go back. Uh, That's why we try to be as careful as we can in understanding the scriptures because this is the final authority in terms of what we do, in terms of what we believe, and in terms of what we hold to. And as denominations get older and older, for example, the Presbyterians, they've abandoned the Bible as a denomination. So also have the Methodists. They've abandoned the Bible. They've degenerated and gone away. And even some Bible churches are sometimes even departing as well. This is just the tendency of human nature. That's why this book is alive today. It speaks to the human heart and our tendency. So we have to be on guard. This is our tendency. We drift away from the word individually as well. To allow it to bring regeneration on a continual basis. In other words, you're talking about sanctification, yes. Well, that's continued growth. It has to do otherwise you die. Yeah, I just clarify that because I don't want us to mix up an idea of ongoing, the idea that we are saved over and over. No, no. I <laughs> no, I, I know you don't mean that. We're regenerated once, but then God sanctifies us because we still need transformation. Connie. Um, so there is a bed. Yes. The- yes. I want to know why did Jesus have just an external, how does baptism? Yeah. Rituals are important. Communion is important. Baptism is important. But it, we need to keep it 
within its biblical bounds. In other words, this is something, a testimony to the community, the believers, is important for accountability. In other words, now this person is proclaiming to be a Christian. We now can expect them to continue to grow. And it also identifies them with the community. So it is important. And I think Jesus was baptized to initiate his ministry as part of his humanity. Not that he needed, and not that it was a sign in Jesus is unique. It's not an outward sign of regeneration, because Jesus is sinless, not needed. It's an identification with us, and that's what baptism is. It's an identification with the community of those that are regenerated. And it's, it's a commandment, too. And it's a commandment. commandment yes. It's important but we as humans put more importance than what the Bible does. Probably, it's probably that. that led, yeah, very good. Very good. Wait a minute, it's a commandment to all who are raising. was baptized here at the timeline. He was baptized, gave the commandment here. He was setting the example. Yes, the, setting the example. Okay. Yeah, that would be better stated. So there is a New Testament analogy. That is not in the passage, but is an application we can draw. Go ahead. Some, some denomination I have, you have a, a child, or a baby, or whatever. You Greek Orthodox, you're yeah. referring to? There is, a, there is a, a person that stands beside you, a witness of your, but that's even the infant. Yes. How can anybody else be a, to, to an infant? To regeneration, you mean? Yeah. yeah, you can't. That's where we have kind of jumped from Scripture to a little distorting of it. Yep. Okay? So that's the New Testamentality. Now, the proof of the Jews is completed in verse 29, and then 3, 1 through 8, he's going to answer what we might describe as objections, keep with my alliteration, protests of the Jews. All right? So first objection, chapter 3, the first two verses in verse 1. And by the way, we have this pattern over and over, as you see in all eight verses. We won't get through all eight of them, but we'll see how far we can get in the time that we have, hopefully to verse 4. So verse 1 raises the issue, and he's going to do this with all four objections. He's going to raise the objection or the issue that would be in the mind of Jewish thinking. And after he's kind of said... You know, the, the Gentiles now potentially could be in a position above the Jew and or even worse, they are in a position of judging the Jew. Well, the natural question is, what advantage of the Jew? That's verse 1. But before I get into that, I found a good quote that sets the whole stage here for this whole paragraph. It's from a scholar by the name of Johnson, S. Lewis Johnson. And by the way, it was S. Lewis Johnson that I first saw what Bible teaching was like. This was way back, last century, way back in the last century time. He says the following, Does this Jewish Christian, Jewish, this completed Jew, to use contemporary language, think that the God-oriented distinction between Jew and Gentile has been obliterated? Paul seems to indicate that there's been an obliteration here. Is the Old Testament so full of the promises of earthly spiritual blessings for Israel and so beautifully expressed that it often appears 
that the psalmists and the prophets dip their pens in a rainbow to proclaim them really a gigantic collection of false hopes okay and then it goes on or can it be that the christians think their god is unwilling or better unable to carry out this grand scheme of a program for the nations and the ages as well as a program of personal individual spiritual life that's kind of a long quote but he's essentially saying has god done away with all of those promises of the old testament that deal with the nation of israel in other words is that distinction between jew and gentile totally obliterated and paul is going to say emphatically no first of all more of the issues by the way that's natal <laughs> new photograph that that was on the night of the what do they call that moon that only occurs once supermoon it happened to peek out of the cloud I was first time I was able to go down to the water this is close to when I was about to leave the night before beautiful <laughs> coastline there anyway some of the issues that Paul is raising as objections in other words these would be issues in the thinking of a Jewish person is it a disadvantage to be a Jew he's almost going to the other end and the Jew might think well it's better not to be one because uh, we don't want to be under gentile judgment we don't want to be less than a gentile we don't want to be even equal with them and paul has basically said you are uncircumcised if you don't have circumcision of the heart the second issue is the jew reduced to gentile and that's what paul seems to be saying third issue is the old testament of false witness that's what sl johnson is saying Fourthly is the and this is very important particularly in that passage dealing with circumcision. Circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And Paul is basically saying or it could be misinterpreted as saying circumcision is of no value. Now he said it has value, but you have to be obedient to the law. So is the Abrahamic covenant broken? That's an unconditional covenant. So it's not broken because God keeps his covenants. They're legal documents. You might even raise a fifth issue, is God unfaithful? And he's going to answer that. Is God unfaithful? It's part of one of the objections. So he's going to answer these and there's perhaps others as well, but these are the ones that stand out. These are the things that a Jewish mind would ask or protest. So in verse 1 then and the basic question what advantage has a Jew? That kind of says, you know, is a Jew reduced to a gentile and there's no advantages. He's going to add to that or what is the benefit of circumcision? That's the issue. He's just been arguing concerning against simply the external act. He's gone beyond and talked about an internal transformation that must go along with it in other words both must be there otherwise the external act is basically useless that's what he's saying but they would focus on their tendency to focus on the external and they might say well what's the benefit of it and they would do it in order to undermine Paul and if Paul answered in the uh, what is it the affirmative there's no benefit if he said there's no benefit they would take him to Genesis 17 they would take him to other passages they would take him to the law that specifies it 
and they would say you're a false teacher. So he's, he's going to answer that to avoid that charge. So he's going to answer it in verse 2. And in verse 2, great in every respect. What is the advantage of the Jew? Great in every respect. What is the value of circumcision? Great in every respect. In other words, there's value. Just as we said, there's value in baptism, but a distorted view of baptism, there's no value. In other words, without regeneration, baptism is useless. It's just an external, on one occasion, you got a little bit wet if you were an infant, a few drops on your forehead or whatever. But baptism is of value, and in this case, in this context, circumcision is of great value, and being Jewish is of great value. So he says, first of all, what does that imply? There's many others, and you might even translate it the priority reason or the main reason he's going to give to us. So first of all, not only implies that there's other advantages as well, but this is the primary advantage. Now, at this point, he could go on and give a great exposition. He's going to save that. He's just giving us a summary here. He just wants to answer the objection. And then he wants to go on. But he's going to devote all of chapters 9, 10, and 11 to this issue. So if you want a whole lot more, study 9, 10, three whole chapters in the book of Romans where he's going to answer what is the advantage of the Jew. And it's great in every way, this advantage. And you can see it spelled out there in some detail, and he's going to answer some issues that are involved with the nation of Israel. This has anything to do with the theology? Yes, absolutely. In other words, he's answering... Did everybody get that question? That's an excellent question. Does everybody know what replacement theology is all about? Exactly what uh, Linda said. And replacement theology, I'm glad you raised it, is very prevalent within the broader church. Not so much in our circles. But let me summarize it. Replacement theology, this deals with that issue. In fact, it answers the issue. Uh, We'll get to that in a moment, but let me answer it ahead of time as to what it is. Replacement theology, and by the way, this is Reformed theology, is replacement theology. But it has gone to several other denominations as well. The idea that because Israel rejected the Messiah, Israel is basically uh, done away with, and replacement theology is that the church has replaced Israel. So all of the promises for Israel, now the church has received those promises And all those passages in the Old Testament that pertain to Israel have been transferred to the church. Does that make sense? Now, it has issues related to eschatology and things in the future, but basically the church has replaced Israel. That is not the biblical teaching, okay? There remains a distinction between Israel and the church. And I could give you 20 distinctions that the Bible makes. The church is one entity. Israel is a different and distinct entity. All of the promises, and this passage is going to deal a little bit with that, touch on it, and there's other passages as well. All of the promises 
that pertain to Israel, God will eventually, and in some cases has already fulfilled, but eventually fulfill every one of them. All of the covenants, who are the parties to all of the covenants, except maybe the Noahic covenant? God is the primary party, and, and Israel. And that includes the new covenant. The new covenant, if you read it in Jeremiah, is between the house of Judah and the house of Israel, because the nation was divided. The new covenant, the parties to it, not the church. Okay, The parties are God and Israel. And these are legal documents, just like your mortgage. The bank doesn't say, oh, okay, you paid half the mortgage, I'll let you free. Or the bank doesn't say, well, you still owe some money. I'm going to go after your children. They're not parties of the covenant. It's a legal document. The covenants of the Old Testament pertain to the nation of Israel. Now, we benefit from the new covenant only because we are related to the ultimate Jew, the Messiah. We come in kind of through the back door. We experience the benefits of the new covenant but we are not parties to it, which that means eventually God is going to fulfill the new covenant with those that are parties to the covenant, the nation of Israel. That's future from even our day. So there are a lot of promises, and all of the covenants have not been fulfilled as well. Even the Abrahamic has not been totally fulfilled. It will be fulfilled in the future, and it will be fulfilled with the nation of Israel. They, one day, according to the Abrahamic covenant, will be prominent over all of the nations. That's in the Millennial Kingdom. Good question. So, first of all, uh, he's going to imply the answer to the question that we just answered. First of all, these are the implications. There are many advantages. Many advantages. This is just the main one, and the one he's listed first. He could have gone on and say secondly, or thirdly, fourthly, fifthly, but he is going to save that for chapter 9. Secondly, Israel is still an instrument of God. There still is a distinction between the church and Israel. And God is still using the nation. And particularly the word that came from the nation of Israel. This book was written by Jewish people. Some even argue for Luke who some believe is a Gentile, but some believe that he may have had Jewish blood. And if that's the case, then every book of the Bible was written by a Jewish person. And this book is still alive and still applicable. But still, the the instrument that God uses, Israel is still used by God. So, first of all, that they were, and here's the main one, were entrusted with the oracles of God. Very fundamental and a very important advantage. And notice the word entrusted. We're going to see that later on. Again, in other words, this word group. This is one of the words that is related to the word group of faith. In other words, to believe in something, the word sometimes can be, like in this context, What God has done is he has believed in Israel. In other words, believed in them, in giving them responsibility for his word. 
So you might better translate it entrusted. Does that make sense? But it's basically the, the word for to believe something. It's the word faith. It's for faith. In this context, it's probably accurately translated. They were, were entrusted with the oracles of God. And we'll come back to this. All I'll show it to you later on. The lexicon, the oracles, the word that is here, is basically logia, related to what word? What does it sound like? Lagas, which is common in the New Testament. Logia is not so common, but it's related to the idea of the word or the lexicon. In this case, Art Gingrich identifies it meaning sayings, when it's speaking of something outside of the Bible, certain sayings or certain utterances. In fact, in reference to pagan gods, they use that word to refer to speaking of pagan gods. Now, obviously, when the Bible uses it, we're talking about the sayings or utterances of the one true God. So that's kind of the basic idea behind it. The word only occurs four times in the New Testament. One of them here in uh, verse 2. And what does it refer to? Well, we could spend a lot of time on it, but in a summary, some scholars think that it has to refer to some special disclosures or some special sayings of God. Well, uh, I think God has entrusted more than just that to the nation of Israel. Some would limit it to the law, and that certainly would be the sayings of God, where he spoke directly on Mount Sinai. And the most common is the whole Old Testament, and I don't have a problem with that. But I think in this context, and particularly in the book of Romans, when he's going to develop this idea of Jesus as Messiah, and he's going to refer to a lot of passages in the Old Testament. And by the way, he hasn't referred to one yet, but he's going to do it in this in this paragraph. I think it more specifically the messianic promises to Israel. More specifically. Now, if you hold to the whole Old Testament, I think you're not mistaken. But particularly and more specifically, messianic promises. They've been entrusted with these. These messianic promises also pertain to them because it's their Messiah. So that's the way I understand the oracles of God. So a couple more implications here. Israel is still the instrument. And remember, the church, the church age, is still in existence. He's writing to the church, the church at Rome. And he's saying this to the church at Rome. And he is referring to the nation of Israel. Yet they still have advantages today, we would say. In the first century, when he's writing, the Jews have advantages God is preserving Jewish people, and it's been in the last, what, 70-some years that he has reestablished them in the land as a nation because he will eventually, and perhaps even shortly, begin to fulfill those promises, including covenants and including the new, new covenant. God is going to begin fulfilling those perhaps very shortly. In fact, it seems like it's been past due in terms of time frame. You might ex- a lot of people expected within 40 years of 1948. Well, it didn't happen because God obviously has other ideas. So the church age is in existence. 
Paul is writing to the church at Rome and he's saying these things concerning the nation of Israel, they still have advantages. God has still entrusted them with his word. So they are responsible even today to preach and teach that word, the oracles of God, and more specifically, those pertaining to Messiah. If this is part of him condemning them, they're not doing that. They're omitting and in fact denying the Messiah. Fourthly, there is still, to answer your question, there's still a church-Israel distinction. Don't mix the two. That's not biblical. And you might even say, fifthly, they don't own the Old Testament and the promises and the oracles, but the word is they've been entrusted or they're, they're stewards of it. It belongs to God himself. It is his word. They are entrusted with it. Bill? It's been very impressive to me how deeply they've been entrusted through our visit to Israel, that God spoke through the prophets, those were Jews. Yes. And then he told the Jews to institute particular methodologies to make sure it would never be changed. Yes. And that entrusting to make sure it would never be changed has been very impressive. Very impressive that they were initially given the word, they preserved it through time, They protected it through time, but they have failed in the last aspect of proclaiming it. But yes, that was very impressive. The Dead Sea Scrolls that we saw and other evidence as well when we were in Israel. They thought they were the owners of it. They were the possessors, but in fact, God says they were entrusted. It's a stewardship, and they were to proclaim it. A fifth implication To us, is ministry is a great privilege. It doesn't belong to us. Whatever ministry God has granted us, whatever gifts he's given us, that gifting is an entrustment or it is a stewardship. And we will be responsible for administering whatever spiritual gift we have. We have access to those oracles And more, God has revealed things like the book of Romans in the New Testament that we are entrusted to as well. Well, that's probably a good place to stop. We got through the first objection, beginning in verse 3. He's going to go into other objections. We'll pick up there next week. Okay, we are entrusted with God's word. Study it, learn it, live it, teach it. Somebody want to close for us? Oh. Terry can close for us. He just walked in. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for your word. We just pray, Lord, that our faith grow and our lives will exhibit you and glorify you in Jesus' name. Now you can say you came to class and you participated even. (laughs) See you next week, Lord willing.